Happy to be here. Happy to be opening up the Word of God again. We're in Acts chapter 20. Uh, I know it was advertised that I would be going through to the middle of chapter 21, but I'm not. Uh, because as I was practicing this, I realized, and I had a whole section for that beginning of Acts chapter 21 up until yesterday. But I, I realized then this would be an hour-long sermon, and uh, I decided I had to punt that. So it's great, great portion. Read it on your own when you have a chance. Um, so we're in the book of Acts. And uh, the book of Acts is a, a really interesting book. It, it's a key book. You know, it's that, that transitional time between the death of Christ. And uh, and if we didn't have it, then we'd be in the epistles and be wondering, how did we get here? So the book of Acts is great. And, um, you know, the book of Acts is an interesting book in that it's a very unfinished book. So when you think of the Lord Jesus and his work, that's a finished work, right? I mean, the Lord Jesus on the cross said, tetelestai. It is finished. It stands accomplished. Um, and all the work was done. There's nothing else that needs to be done to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing anyone else can do. All the work uh, to accomplish our salvation, to pay for our sins, to bring us into fellowship with God, to, to give us eternal life and fellowship with the Lord. All of that was accomplished by the Lord on the cross. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing needs to be added to it. But the work wasn't done. I mean, the work of salvation was done. But what was the Lord Jesus's plan as he talked about in Matthew chapter 16? He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And building his church, the body of Christ, is based upon the work of Christ, of course, but it's an ongoing work. And, and the book of Acts gives us that, that ongoing work of the Lord building his church. And here in Acts 20, we get a little glimpse of part of that work, how Paul and some others were involved in that work and some of the things that went into it and what that church is like, especially what a local church is like. So I'm going to read many verses, but not necessarily every single one. Uh, so uh, I'm going to skip, actually, in Acts chapter 20, the first uh, five verses. They're great verses, but they're, they're mostly travelogue type thing. Uh, they probably cover a long period of time. I mean, we know that they cover at least over three months because three months is mentioned and that doesn't include the travel time in those verses, but they probably include a year or more, maybe even a more than a year of travel and ministry um, that Paul and his companions um, underwent. Um, so uh, and during that time, by the way, he probably wrote the, the books of Second Corinthians and of Romans. Uh, but picking up at verse six of chapter 20, verse six of chapter 20, we sailed from Philippi, by the way, notice we, that means Luke was with him, the writer of the book. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came uh, to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. Verse seven, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Does that mean that I can prolong my message? No, I guess not. Not until midnight. And, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a certain young na man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. As Paul kept talking, he was overcome by sleep and he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell down upon him and embracing him. He said, do not be troubled. His life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daylight uh, break and so departed. So 
questions to think about as we look at this, you know, and as you read the word of God, it's, it's always good to ask questions, you know, to, to sort of say, well, why is it this way? When did this happen? How did this happen? Because asking those types of questions become a door as you pray and as you study the word of God to better understand what's going on. So one question I asked myself as I was reading this is, why did he wait seven days? You know, they got to Troas and then they waited seven days. And we find out later on in the passage in verse 16, uh, Paul was really making a beeline to Jerusalem. He wanted to get to Jerusalem as soon as humanly possible. And he was cutting all the corners he possibly could to get to Jerusalem quickly. So if that's the case, then why is he hanging out for the better part of a week? It's, that seven days is probably an approximation. It's probably six and a, and a little bit more, but still hanging out for the better part of a week at Troas when he could have been moving on with his trip towards Jerusalem. And I would say, Probably the answer is, and most commentators would agree on this, probably the answer is that that's when the assembly met. You know, the assembly met once a week. Okay, we have multiple meetings. We have prayer meetings. We have Bible studies. We have fellowship meeting times. We have all kinds of different meetings often in our church or in other local churches, but they met once a week and they met on the first day of the week, Sunday, in commemoration of that being the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. They also probably met in the evening, by the way. Um, you know, and that was probably for various reasons. You know, a lot of their members would have been slave or poor people who couldn't afford to take Sunday off, who didn't have the luxury of being able to take Sunday off. And so if they wanted to meet on a Sunday, the evening would have been the only time they could have done it. So Paul didn't speak quite as long as you might think. He didn't start at 11 o'clock in the morning and then go to midnight. This wasn't an all-day message. It probably was a several-hour message, mind you, but it wasn't an all-day message. So Paul gives this long message. Eutychus dies. Eutychus is revived, and then they have what appears to be a fellowship time all the way until daybreak, and and I say a fellowship time because the word for talking in verse uh, 11 in the Greek is a different word than the word in verse 7. It's a more informal word, so, so probably what happened is they got together, they had their meeting, they had the breaking of bread, they had some speaking, Paul apparently being the primary speaker, um, and then they had a fellowship time after that until daybreak. Now, we aren't told here what the meeting was like, other than the fact that it included the breaking of bread, because it, we're told they gathered together to break bread, and it included Paul talking, and it included fellowship later on. Um, we do get a glimpse in another passage, which for the sake of time, I'm not going to turn to, um, but you might want to read sometime in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the meeting of the local church. Um, and it's in the context of Paul writing to the Corinthians, a, a letter that is filled both with encouragement, instruction, but also lots and lots of correction because there were some things going on that needed to be dealt with in that local church. Um, so, you know, there were some things that he mentions in chapter 14 that are corrective, but it still gives us a little bit of a view into the meeting of the local church. And apparently it was a meeting that was an open meeting. It was an unscripted meeting. Um, it was a meeting that had wide participation. You know, there wasn't like one single person or two people who ran the meeting and did all the talking and everything. It was a meeting where a lot of things were going on. There was prayer. There was reading of the word of God. There was people expositing the word of God. There was singing. Uh, there were Psalms, there were many different you know, moving pieces as the Lord led through his spirit in the lives of various brethren to exercise um, their priesthood because believers are described in First Peter, First uh, Peter, where's my reference? I'm, I'm not finding it right now. First Peter chapter two, verse five, as holy priests. And so 
you know, functioning as holy priests, using the spiritual gifts that God had given them, people would speak and act in different ways in this meeting. And because it was an unscripted meeting, you know, it was different every week. We're, we're told in Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, it was to be done in an orderly fashion. It wasn't supposed to be chaotic. And some of the Corinthians' misunderstandings about tongues and the use of tongues was making it a bit chaotic. So that needed to be dealt with. But it was this wonderful open meeting. And as part of that open meeting, um, sometimes people would get up and open up the word of God. And Paul would have been one of the people who did it at this meeting. Now, most of the time, someone who would get up probably would be speaking for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But this was an exceptional situation. Uh, Paul was Paul the apostle. Paul was never, ever going to be here again. This is the first and last time, as far as we know, he ever had an opportunity to minister uh, at Troas. And so I think it was very natural. Perhaps the brethren even said to him, brother, just go as long as as long as the Lord leads you. You just you just go. You just go because, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We don't want to miss this opportunity. So Paul gives this long talk. Now, we have multiple meetings instead of a single meeting, right? Um, but we do need to be careful that in our multiple meetings, we preserve the aspects and priorities of the New Testament church, which is what we're patterning ourselves after. And so we, we should allow for times for fellowship, like they had times for fellowship. We should allow for times of prayer, times of Bible teaching and Bible learning, times, of course, most of all, for, for worship and for, for remembrance of, of the Lord Jesus. In fact, you might note in verse, uh, let's see, verse five, it says that they were gathered together to break bread. They were gathered together to break bread. The breaking of bread was not an incidental thing here. It was a primary purpose of them gathering. It was a primary purpose of them gathering. And it's not just here. Once again, looking back at the letter of 1 Corinthians, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the second half of that chapter, Paul chastises the Corinthian believers because they were not gathering together with the purpose of breaking bread. Oh, they were breaking bread. That wasn't the focus of their meeting. That wasn't the preeminent purpose of them coming together. There were other things and some of it not so great that was going on, that was really the reason why they were turning up. And the breaking of bread was just something that happened along the way. The breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, communion, whatever word you want to use for it, the time in which you're dwelling on and remembering the Lord Jesus as he asked us to do, as is recorded both in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians 11, that was the purpose of the gathering of the local church. And so I would say that that should probably be our preeminent purpose if there's any one meeting in the entire week or, or any part of one meeting that is perhaps the most important part, I would say it's probably the breaking of bread. That doesn't mean the other things are unimportant. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be praying, fellowshipping, teaching the word of God, learning the word of God. All of those are important. Um, but the breaking of bread is a very, very, very important time. And, and I want to just give you for a moment sort of a personal aspect on this uh, before I go on and talk about uh, this a little bit more. So, um, I love the breaking of bread. I, I just absolutely love it. And you probably know that if, if you've come here for any period of time, but, but that's not how it always was. You know, before I was saved, I wasn't saved as an adult. Um, I was saved when I was 22 years old. Um, and I just had to put together that story afresh because I'm getting ready to, to speak and give my testimony at a church in a few weeks. So if anyone wants a copy of that story, I have it available. It's a two page PDF. Um, but I used to visit a chapel not too much different from this chapel that had a breaking of bread. 
I don't remember the breaking bread to be perfectly honest, but I'm pretty sure I was present for it probably at times because I was, you know, visiting with my girlfriend um, who was a believer and um, it meant nothing to me. It meant really literally, it's not that I didn't like it. It just meant nothing to me. I mean, it's a time of remembrance, a remembrance of the Lord Jesus. How can you remember someone you don't know? I didn't know the Lord. I didn't want to know the Lord. And so the breaking bread meant zero to me. Then I got saved. The Lord worked in my life. I came to a knowledge of Christ. It's wonderful. Um, and of course, I recognized pretty quickly that the breaking bread seemed to be a pretty important meeting, both at that assembly that I was going to in um, Pennsylvania and also the assembly here in New Jersey, where I lived, that I started attending, which was Fifth Avenue Chapel down in Belmar, New Jersey. Um, and so I would go week by week. I knew it was important to be there. I knew it was important to participate, but it just didn't work for me a lot of times. I mean, there were many Sundays that I really enjoyed the breaking of bread, but to be honest, there was a lot of Sundays that it, it just didn't work for me very much. I mean, I was sitting there. I was like, why am I here? I know I'm a mess in my life. I'm trying to change, but I don't, I'm, I'm not worthy to be here. And, and I should be feeling worshipful. I mean, here's these guys standing up with tears in their eyes. They just love the Lord so much. And I'm sitting here and my heart feels so cold. And I don't really know this music. I'm not sure if I like all of it either. And, you know, there was just so many reasons why. Oh, and on top of that, because I'm a guy and guys are expected to get up and say something at the breaking of bread. There I am sitting about, well, should I stand up? Should I say something? What should I say? You know, and, and, and I was damned if I do, damned if I don't. You know, if I got up, I'd be like, wow, I did a lousy job of that. I probably shouldn't have said anything. And if I didn't get up, I'd be like, wow, I really should have gotten up and said something. It wasn't necessarily a very pleasant experience for all those reasons. And, and that reflected elements of my own walk with Christ in that, though I think I did know Christ as Savior, there was a lot of legalism in my life, not really a, an understanding of what it means to rest in Christ and just enjoy him and rest in his worthiness rather than my own. Um, then came a time in my life that lasted many years where I didn't go to breaking bread, or if I did go, I didn't really value it or care about it. I'd show up late if I came at all. Um, it wasn't something I particularly enjoyed. Sometimes I even actively avoided it again, which reflected where I was at spiritually in my life. But then by God's grace came the last phase, or at least the last phase so far, uh, where I started to see the breaking of bread, not as an obligation, but as an opportunity. I mean, it is an obligation in the sense that the Lord commanded us to do it. I know we talk about it being a request and not a command, but you know, if the king asks you to do something, there's not a whole lot of a difference between request and command, is there? Um, but, but still, it's also an opportunity. It's a blessed opportunity. And I started seeing it that way as a blessed opportunity to just sit there and just forget about myself for an hour. You know, I think about myself way too much. All of us probably do to one extent or another. But instead of thinking about myself, just to think about him, forget about whether or not I'm worthy. I'm not, but he is. And to dwell on the Lord Jesus and to fall in love with him as I dwell on him and I hear other people saying nice things about him, which doesn't happen too much in our society. You know, you go to work, you don't hear people saying nice things about Jesus very often. Um, but here at the Breaking Bread, you do. And it became a wonderful and special time. And it is a wonderful time, right? I mean, you come to Breaking Bread, um, you know, we dwell on him. We think about his holiness. We think about his compassion to people who are, were little thought of at the time. Women, children, lepers, you know, those who were sick. 
people, you know, Samaritans, people who weren't well thought of, but, but he cared about them. We thought about how he taught, how he spoke like no other person. We, we think about his miracles. We think about the way he healed and, and helped people and all the love and grace that he showed to people. We think, of course, preeminently of him going to the cross, of him willingly bearing our sins and suffering and dying for us. And then the fact that he rose triumphant from the dead. We think about all those things and they're wonderful, but you know, One special thing is that fact that he did rise from the dead. And so as we remember him, we're remembering someone who is still alive, which makes it even more special. You know, the past two nights, Linda and I sat down and we watched a memorial service, you know, the recording of a memorial service that I wasn't able to make it to, unfortunately. And like many memorial services of of Christians, which I have been at, you know, I'm sitting there watching that service, listening to the things that are said and thinking, wow. I knew this person, but I really didn't know them anywhere near as well as I thought I knew them. This person sounds like they're amazing. They're wonderful. You know, I really would love to get to know this person better because they just sound like a great person. But I can't, right? Because they're not here anymore. They're in glory. They're with heaven, in heaven with the Lord Jesus. I'll see them in heaven one day when I go there, but I can't really get to know them now. Well, you know, the breaking of bread is sort of like a memorial service for someone who's still alive. Because we have the opportunity to get to know better the person we're hearing all these wonderful things about. So it's a great, great, great opportunity. So I would encourage you. <clears throat> and, you know, enough said about this. I'll, I'll get off my soapbox, but I do think it's important. I would encourage you, think about what can I do to facilitate being here for the breaking of bread, both physically and mentally more often? You know, physically actually showing up. And most of the people I'm looking at here are here for the breaking of bread very regularly and probably the people who are listening via recording or otherwise. But, you know, there's times we can't make it. I was really late today because I got caught, you know, for time trying to, uh, you know, finish preparing for this message and finish looking my notes over and thinking through some last minute changes. And so I missed most of the breaking bread, which I regret. And there are times that we all are going to be late or going to miss it for unavoidable reasons. But, you know, let's figure out what can I do to be here most of the time? And then perhaps as importantly, what can I do to to really be here? Be here for the breaking of bread, not just be sitting in the seat, not be officially here, but really be here, really be engaged in dwelling on the Lord Jesus during that time, however long we have. I mean, I loved when we had an hour. I hope eventually maybe we'll move back there again. But however long we have, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour to take that time to really dwell on the Lord Jesus, both yourself and as others, you know, bring the Lord Jesus forth as they read the word of God, hymns, whatever, to just dwell on the Lord Jesus, to be actively engaged in dwelling upon him. It pleases the Lord greatly. I think it brings joy to his heart, but it also transforms us as we fall in love more with him. Okay, so let's let's move on. So I'm, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 17. From Miletus. So he had bypassed Ephesus to save time um, because he had been three years at Ephesus. He knew so many people there. He knew if he went to Ephesus, he'd be bogged down probably for days, maybe weeks or even longer. And so he, he goes ahead to Miletus and it says from Miletus, he sent and called to him the elders of the church. The elders of the church. Let me just stop there for a second. Do you notice that word elders? That word elders is plural. Every place in the Bible you see the word elders, it's plural. Now, there is an exception, 
the passages in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that have the qualifications for an elder, it's singular. You know, if any man desires the office of overseer, singular, overseer, bishop, elder, and interchangeable terms in the New Testament. It's singular, but that makes sense because they're talking about one single person thinking about, gee, am I supposed to be an elder? If so, what would tell me that I'm really qualified to be an elder? Um, and so, of course, it's singular in that context. But every place else, elders is always plural. You never hear of the elder singular of a church. Um, it's always the elders plural. Uh, there were multiple elders in each New Testament church, in each New Testament assembly. There were multiple elders. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, humility, tears, and trials. Life wasn't easy for the apostle Paul. You know, you, you read first, uh, second Corinthians, ooh, I think it's chapter four. He's got this long litany of suffering he went through, you know, shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and, you know, imprisonment and Life wasn't easy for the Apostle Paul. He had a tough, tough, tough life. But rather than make him bitter, it equipped him to be devoted and faithful and fruitful for service. It equipped him to be devoted and, and fruitful for service. And, and, and as a result of that, it says how in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and those two twin things, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, sort of hold on to those in the back of your head. I want to come back to those later on. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about how he's going to Jerusalem. He knows bonds and afflictions await him, but that's okay because he's willing to go through suffering. He's willing to go through suffering for the Lord Jesus. He knows he'll never see them again. He says, I testify to you this day in verse 26, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from you, from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Here is a faithful, devoted servant, willing to suffer, willing to die if need be, that he might proclaim the word of God, that he might accomplish God's will. And I think his effectiveness was because he had learned through his suffering to, to rely on the power of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he, he prays to the Lord to take away um, a time of suffering and affliction that Satan had sent. It very specifically says that Satan had sent it. And the Lord replies to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions. He lists a whole bunch of things he's content with. Why? For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. None of us like difficulties. None of us like difficulties. And you might say, well, does this mean I should seek out trial? Should I seek out pain because I know God will work through it? No. I mean, you know, that's not human nature. And the Bible never tells us to do that. You know, we're not supposed to be sitting around flagellating ourselves or asking someone else to flagellate us for us. Um, but when pain and difficulty and suffering come into our lives in one form or another, and it does, it comes to the life of every believer. Sometimes it's because Satan sent it. Sometimes it's because we live in a broken world where sickness and death and accidents happen. Sometimes it's because God is working sovereignly to try to, uh, to accomplish something in our life. But regardless of the source of the difficulty, 
we can welcome it or at least accept it and perhaps learn to welcome it because we know God is doing wonderful things. As we go through difficulties, we're humbled. Um, we learn to better know, love, and be like the Lord Jesus. We experience more of his power in our lives, just like Paul experienced Christ's power in his life. We become equipped to help others. We become emotionally equipped to help those who are grieving and hurting themselves. It's very, very, very hard to comfort someone who is suffering if you've never really hit bottom yourself. Um, and we become a better testimony for the Lord. So suffering, something Paul went through and that equipped him, I think, to be the faithful worker that he was. Let's move on. And verse 28, be on God for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The elders were part of the flock. They had a responsibility to be overseers, to be shepherds of the flock, but they themselves were also part of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, or perhaps a better translation might be, which he purchased with the blood of his own, that is with the Lord Jesus's blood. Verse 29, after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. There's going to be false teachers coming in. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. So there's a need to be on guard to protect and watch over the spiritual welfare of the flock. Now, a few things I want to take from this. One is the fact that it says that the Holy Spirit made them overseers. The Holy Spirit made them overseers. And that's important to understand. How did they physically become overseers? Paul might have appointed them. We know that happened in other cities. We don't read that happening in Ephesus, as I recall. Or it might be that at this point, um, the the qualifications for elders, which are, you know, laid down in scripture in in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that might already have been something that through the spirit of God was clear in Paul's mind and that he had taught to the Ephesians. And therefore, based on those qualifications, they themselves had recognized the elders among them. But either way, whether it was Paul appointing or the Ephesian assembly recognizing, it was actually the spirit of God who made them overseers. You're not, you don't become an elder because someone makes you an elder. You become an elder because the spirit of God makes you an elder. And then others recognize the fact that, yes, you have been called to be an elder of God's people. But some of the qualifications, by the way, included being of godly character. And I'm just summarizing here, not having a quick temper. That one's tough for guys, isn't it? Um, managing your, your own household well, not being addicted or controlled by wine, money, or implicitly anything else, being a mature believer, not being a neophyte, having a good reputation, both within the church and outside of the church. That doesn't necessarily mean being, you know, like Bill Gates and being rich. It means being well thought of as far as your character, both inside and outside the church. You're not one person on Sundays and someone else the rest of the week. Um, So these people had been called by God to be shepherds of the flock. And shepherding is a metaphor that's very common in scripture. Psalm 23, we see, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is the shepherd. In Ezekiel chapter 34, which is a great, if you want to see the good and bad, so to speak, of shepherding, read Ezekiel chapter 34, because it's the Lord through the prophet Ezekiel talking to the leaders of Israel, telling them what a lousy job they were doing as shepherds of his sheep, of the people of Israel at at that point, and how they should have been doing and how he one day will shepherd his sheep. 
Great, great passage there. In John chapter 10, we see the Lord is the good shepherd. He says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Lord is the shepherd of us all, including the elders. But the elders have a special charge to be under shepherds, to work under the authority of the shepherd among the sheep for the Lord's good and for the sheep's good. It says in First Peter chapter 5 of this, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you have to do it, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So they're being told here, don't do it because of what you can get out of it, because of the money you might get out of it, or because of the recognition you might get out of it, or because of a sense of feeling good about yourself you might get out of it. Do it because it's an opportunity to serve the Lord and serve his people, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock, which makes sense. They're not above the flock, they're within the flock, and yet they're charged with helping to shepherd that flock and to lead that flock. It's a heavy burden, isn't it? That's a lot to ask someone to do. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, we're told that they're going to have to give an account, that they're going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and not just give an account of their own lives, but give an account for the assembly that they were responsible for shepherding. You know, if they failed as shepherds, that's going to be an opportunity for reward they're going to lose. And yet, to the extent that they're faithful as shepherd, Verse four of first Peter five tells us, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory for those who serve well as elders, not perfectly. No one's perfect. Our elders are, are, are great, but they're not perfect. No one's perfect. Only Christ is perfect. Um, but as you serve faithfully and well as an elder, this is crown of glory promised because of doing that. We well, I guess the question that you might ask, because I look around and I'm not seeing anyone who's currently working as an elder, at least that I know of here. Um, John was here earlier, but, but he's not here right now. He's probably doing Sunday school, uh, which is great. So, so the question we might ask ourselves is, well, I'm not an elder. What is, how does this apply to me? Why, 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 why do I really need to know any of this stuff? Well, I, I think for at least two reasons. First of all, we are really, we're called in various passages to love, recognize, and appreciate, and I think implicitly to pray for, because we're told to pray for our leaders and the elders are some of our leaders on the local level, our elders. It's difficult to do that if you don't really understand their work and what they're called to do. So as we better understand the work of the elders, we can better appreciate them, love them, encourage them, and pray for them and support them in their important work of shepherding the sheep of looking after the flock, of protecting, of feeding, of healing, of helping, of encouraging, of doing all the things that a shepherd needs to do for a sheep and they need to do for us. So that's one thing. The second thing is believers are called to do a lot of very similar things for each other, even if you're not an elder. We're told to love each other. We're told to encourage each other. We're told to weep with those who weep. We're told to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're, we're, we're told to admonish one another, to warn one another. You see a brother going in a direction that you know that that is not going to end well. Well, don't just like close your eyes to it or, pe- you know, be a coward. Say something to that brother in love. Look for an opportunity to say something. And love. say, hey, brother, have you considered 
the end of that trip that you're starting? Have you considered where that's probably going to lead to? You, you might want to reconsider this. You know, we, we are told to do things, these things for one another, to help one another. You read passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, and they're filled with exhortations. And there's probably other passages I'm leaving out for us to do things that sort of look and feel a lot like shepherding. And that doesn't mean we're all called to be elders, but it does mean that we are all called to some extent to do some of these same things. And so as we understand the work of elders and shepherding the sheep, maybe we can do some of that work here and there. You know, if you're a good elder, you don't really mind if some of the sheep shepherd each other and help each other out. There's generally more to do for an elder, you know, uh, than there's time to do it. And so if some of the sheep are, you know, shepherding each other, that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. So verse 32, just continuing. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, still speaking to the elders, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Notice Paul commends them because what he's asking them to do as shepherd is, is a big job. You know, what's their resource? Their resource is God and the word of his grace. That's their resource. And that's still the resource, both for the elders and for us. What's the resource to be able to do the work of God and to be able to shepherd the sheep and to be able to help one another and to serve in the local church? What's the resource? It's the spirit of God living within us and guiding us. And it's the word of God. That's the resource. And so what do we need to do? And not just the elders. We need to be spending much time in prayer so that the spirit of God can guide us. We need to be spending much time in the word of God because this is what will equip us as we get to know and become like the Lord Jesus and learn to see things his way and learn and understand the word of God. This is what will equip us to serve him in whatever way he has to serve. We all have different spiritual gifts, physical gifts, opportunities. We're not all going to serve in the local church in the same way. That's good. Um, But we need the word of God and we need prayer. actually not too far off from my timing this miracle it's because i'm skipping leaving things out but you can't say everything so in conclusion i had a few things and, and i hope that the lord as the lord has led that perhaps through his word you know through apart from in spite of anything i said about it that you've gotten something out of this chapter but there's three things that i see that i'd like to talk about two which are just summary and one which is a little bit new first of course at the lord's supper It's both a commandment of the Lord Jesus, but also a wonderful opportunity. Again, I would encourage each of us to be thinking about how we can physically, emotionally, and spiritually be present at it whenever possible. Um, Second, what we were just talking about, the elders of the local assembly, we need to pray for support and encourage them. But the last thing I want to talk about is one that I purposely sort of skipped over because I wanted to leave it for now. And it's Acts chapter 20, verse 21 where it says of Paul, I'm just going to reread that verse. Uh, Paul describes uh, his ministry, both publicly and house to house, as solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's three things I want to take out of that. First of all, that he describes his proclamation of the gospel, which again, was sometimes public, sometimes in individual households, one-on-one, it was a solemn thing, and it involved repentance towards God, and it involved faith in our Lord Jesus. So why was it solemn? Well, the gospel message that we have the opportunity to give 
is a solemn thing that shouldn't deter us from telling other people. It's a very, very serious responsibility we've been given. We tell people the message that becomes sort of this dividing line, this crossroad, and they have to decide what they're going to do with it. And if they go one direction, they're headed towards heaven. They have eternal life. They have fellowship with God, both now in the present as well as uh, forever with the Lord. And if they reject and they go the other direction, well, they're heading towards eternal damnation. They don't have God in their life in this life, and they won't have God in their life for eternity. It's a very, very solemn thing. There's nothing light about it. It's joyful that we're giving them the message of life, but it's also solemn. Uh, John chapter three, verse 36 says, he who believes in the life, excuse me, he who believes in the son has eternal life, not will have eternal life when they get to heaven, has eternal life, which John 17, three defines as knowing God, uh, you know, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You know, those who accept Christ as Savior have eternal life as a present possession to enjoy, have the Lord in their life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's a solemn thing to present the gospel to someone. It's really important, but it's solemn um, because of the decision point it involves. And then what does the gospel involve? Well, it involves two things primarily. And it's good to keep this in mind, I think, as we try to share Christ with others. If you don't understand the gospel at a really deep level, then I think it's difficult to be able to share Christ with others. If all you know is what you've read in a tract, you know, fine, you can give the person that tract. But as you understand the gospel better, it becomes, I think, easier to communicate it to other people in a natural way in conversation. It involves two things. It involves repentance and faith. So the gospel involves repentance towards God. Now, repentance is not penitence. I know that there's a similar sound to that. You know, it's not earning our salvation. It's not paying for our sins. It's not even simply remorse, although I guess remorse is sort of related to the idea of repentance. I mean, Judas felt a lot of remorse. You know where that led him. That didn't work out so well. Um, It's not remorse. It's changing our mind. That's literally what repentance means. The Greek word is metanoia, change mind. It's changing our mind about God and about ourselves. Previously, you thought, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing fine. I can run my own life. And God, I'm not even sure if he's there, but if he is, I'm sure he's good with me. You know, Uh, he's probably cheering me on. Um, It's changing your mind and realizing, wow, I was totally wrong. You know, Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's me. I've sinned. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow. All I've earned for myself is death. I've done things that are wrong. I'm not living for God. I'm living for myself. It involves repentance, changing your mind about yourself and about God. But you can't stop there because then you're, you know, that's a pretty miserable place to stop. It involves faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says, Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. That's a wonderful verse to remember. That's a wonderful verse to tell someone that Christ died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. He with the just, we're the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Salvation's a gift. You know, I buy my wife a, a, a nice present. It's a gift. She doesn't have to turn around and say, okay, Larry, well, how much is that? I'll, I'll pay you back for that. No, it's a gift. It's not hers unless she takes it, of course, but it's still a gift. 
John 1.12, another wonderful verse to remember and tell people, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So that's that idea of receiving, of taking that gift for ourselves, of by faith recognizing that, yes, we are sinners, but Christ died for those sins that he might bring us to God, and we can rest in what he did for us and know salvation, something that we accept as a gift totally apart from anything we could ever hope to do uh, to earn salvation now or in the future. You know, one thing I have not mentioned this entire sermon um, is the day. It's 9-11, right? 21 years ago, um, most of us, other than the obvious exceptions of the little ones, um, are old enough to remember 9-11, okay? I mean, it's startling to me. I teach college and I realize none of my students remember 9-11. I mean, you know, maybe some of the older adult students do, but, you know, most of my students were fresh out of high school, nine, you know, 18, 19 years old. They were born before, you know, they were born after 9-11. They don't remember it. It's just something in the history books to them, but we remember it. It was a horrific time. You know, we all remember, you know, where we were at that time, or at least probably most of us do. And, and of course, you remember all the stories of those first responders who went to those towers as they were crumbling and after they crumbled and at the risk and sometimes cost of their own lives worked hard to rescue people. Serving the Lord Jesus is sort of like being one of those first responders in a sense, or it should be. The Christian life is not meant to be one of ease, relaxation, fun, that doesn't mean God doesn't want us to ever relax or have fun. He's a good God. He's created all things good for us to enjoy, it says in Timothy. But he wants us to serve. And it's costly. And it could be dangerous. But it's worth it. You know, the, the men and women who went into those towers, they did it because they thought it was worth it. And they were right. And when we serve the Lord Jesus, even if it's a costly thing, cost of our time, cost of our money, perhaps may sometimes cost of our health or our energy or even our lives, depending on where we're called to go and what we're called to do. Um, it's well, well worth it. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that the book of Acts has no clear end. And that excites me like crazy because, you know, I love reading and I love good books. Okay. My, my wife can tell you how many books we have in our house and how many books I read. I love a good book. And one thing to me that's really important about a good book is a good conclusive ending. I hate books where you read and read and read and read and read, and then you get to the end and you can tell the author was just looking for a certain word count to be able to sell the book. And, and, and the story just stops. Loose ends aren't tied together. The story just stops. And I could practically scream when that happens. I want a nice conclusive ending that ties things together. And you know, the Acts, Acts does not have that. You read Acts chapter 1 through 28 and get to 28 and it just stops. Just stops on a dime. And you sort of feel like, wait, couldn't there be more? Yes, there could be. But that's where the Spirit of God led Luke to stop, but not to conclude. Why? Why not conclude it? Because it's not done yet. You can't conclude a story that's not done yet. The story of Acts is the story of Christ building his church through his spirit 
indwelling his believers who are part of his existing body, the church, and continuing the process of building the church, seeing people saved, seeing people discipled and encouraged and helped to grow in Christ, that they too might go out and win others and disciple and help others and serve the local church in various ways. Christ is building his church and it's an ongoing work. You know, Luke could have kept writing. Other people could have taken up the writing. We would probably be at chapter, you know, 1,533,258 by now, you know, because it's an unfinished work and we get to be part of that. We get to be part of that unfinished work of building his church. I mean, we're not the ones doing it. It's, it's Christ who's building his church through his spirit working through us, but we can be his instruments of building the church. And that is worth whatever the cost is. So we need to look for those opportunities. Lord, what would you have me to do? We need to be asking, who can I talk to? Is there a neighbor who I can build a, a closer friendship with and perhaps tell about the Lord Jesus, a, a coworker, a schoolmate, a family member, a friend? Yeah, how about those who do know Christ? Are there those I can encourage, build up in some way? Does someone need a meal? Does someone need a word of encouragement? Can I help someone out with something? Can I help in the local church in some role? You know, what would you have me to do, Lord, as part of building your body, the church? Because that's not just the work of a few people. That's the work of all of us. And we should be asking, Lord, what will you have me to do to build your church? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for thy son, the Lord Jesus. We would not be here if it wasn't for him. We would not be here if it wasn't for that finished work, which he did on the cross and dying in our behalf. So that way you might be fully accepted. We thank you for the fullness of that acceptance. We thank you that there is absolutely nothing that we have done, could do, or will ever have to do to earn your acceptance, to earn your love. We are accepted fully as those who have placed our faith in Christ, in Christ alone on the cross. We are fully accepted, fully loved. It's not a matter of serving you so that you might love us more so you might be more pleased with us. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more. We thank you for that. Lord, we think of the fact that it could be that there's someone here or, or perhaps more likely someone uh, might hear this recording in the future who, who knows not Christ and just pray that if that's the case, you would work in that person's heart to help them to, to come to the point of repentance, to recognize that they desperately need you, to recognize that they're not okay, that they need forgiveness, that they need help, that they need eternal life that can only be found in you and that that life is available through the work of your son. And all they need to do is reach out to accept it by faith, seeing him as the man and God who died in their place, the just for the unjust that he might bring them to God. Father, we think of ourselves and we recognize that as believers in Christ who know you, we have this blessed and wonderful opportunity to serve you, to contribute to building the church. And we're not all do it in different ways. Not everyone's called to be a preacher. Not everyone's called to um, do various other things in the body of Christ. There's a long list of spiritual gifts, and each of those spiritual gifts has different ways they can be accomplished in different ways, using the physical gifts and opportunities you've given us. We're called to serve in different ways, but we're all called to serve. Help us, Lord, to do what you want us to to build up the body of Christ. And as part of that, help us to be willing and able to communicate this gospel, to communicate the gospel of Christ. How wonderful it would be if this room was filled with people who had heard the gospel, 
and believed, not because we want to grow our church and get it bigger. That might be nice. We want to see people coming to know Christ. And Lord, we just pray that you'd open up the door for us to be able to share Christ with others solemnly, to tell them about the needed repentance, but also to tell them about the love of God and the faith in Christ and all that they can have in him. Just give us wisdom and opportunity to know people, to talk to people, to have wisdom to know where they're at, where to start, when to say something, when not to say something, but not to keep our mouth silent all the time either, so that they might perhaps come to Christ as you work in their lives. We thank you for your love in Christ's name. Amen.